Lori Hybe, Chris Harrington, and Aaron Courtney, three broads, bringing you stories and strategies exploring manufacturing topics that challenge the status quo while laying the foundations for future success. Together with special guests, they'll celebrate what's working and unpack what is not so you can learn, grow, and succeed. If you want to learn more about your hosts, make sure to listen to episode one. All right. So right now we're talking about songs. Is that what we were talking about beforehand? Before I hit the well, record button? Yeah, actually, our <laughs> intro song made me think of it like, you know, music, good music that really kind of gets you going. And I was wondering what, what you guys are into, like a song that you're super loving these days or a song that every time you hear it, you can't help but shake your booty, booty yeah. pie. Um, yeah. What are you guys into? I, I oh. can start. Sure, yeah, go for it. Go for it. Yeah. yeah. I, I actually do love music, but I always forget the names of songs. So I am a person that I will actually take breaks during the day, get in the car, go grab a coffee somewhere and turn up the music. So I absolutely awesome. love it. But there's love a it. song that I, I love. It's called Energia and it's by Sophie Tucker. So if, uh, if, okay. if that's a new that name down. for people, um, that might be a, a fun song that will get you gr- you know, groove in and jive in. So. I love it. Okay. Awesome. Lori. Yeah. So not necessarily, there's too many songs to pick one. I'm just going to be straight (laughs) up forward with that. But what I will tell you is that I, my most played Pandora station, which I call, it's called hipster cocktail party. And it's just got such an eclectic variety of tunes from like really current, um, cool tunes to, you know, stuff that was, um, you know, really hot, maybe like 30 years ago. So um, good variety definitely is a great, um, like hosting a, a party. So you're, you're hitting all the, nice. all the yeah. varieties of the songs, I guess. Yeah. And everyone likes it. Yeah. No complaints. So check far. it out. <laughs> yeah. So. Music you can drink to. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Hipster cocktail party. Awesome. I've had on a, uh, just replay lately this song it came across I think it was my Spotify called AOK by I think it's Ty Verde and I mean it is just such a like it's gonna work out deal and it's gonna be good and I just I love it it's like my anthem lately so um great thanks for thanks for contributing I think uh our listeners in addition to some awesome music recommendations are gonna have such a good time with us today because we have Daniel Rogie on the show he's the CEO of Tormach welcome Daniel Rogie we're gonna call you Rogie today that sounds perfect thank you for having me Awesome. So, so Rogi, you're the CEO of Tarmac and uh, you have a diverse background that includes experience as a professional metal fabricator, educator, motion control engineer, and software developer. Hey, you're in my world. Uh, Rogi, <laughs> you hold a BA from Grinnell College and an MS in industrial engineering. And the focus is on manufacturing from University of Iowa. Mm -hmm. You continue to focus professionally on what you spent your time doing as a teaching assistant at Iowa, helping people make things. I love that. That's awesome. Welcome so much today. Well, thanks for having me. 
helping helping people make stuff is a lot of fun as it turns out <laughs> before i get started with questions if there is anybody in our audience that just isn't quite familiar with tormach can you just give us a quick rundown of what the tormach in what you do over there what, at Tormach, do? what sure. you make yeah sure so um we we design, sell, and support tools that help people make stuff, um, largely smaller computer-controlled tools. So milling machines, lathes, plasma cutters, CNC routers, uh, more recently automation products like uh, industrial robots. But the, the general idea is these are all tools that, especially when the business started 20 years ago, were incredibly hard to get your hands on mm -hmm. because you needed you know, 480 volt three phase power and a big industrial space with a reinforced concrete floor. And they were really hard to use the, the tools that were available. You know, the user interfaces mm -hmm. are pretty abysmal and they were yeah. super expensive. <laughs> oh. And, uh, and so, you know, I mean, big companies like GM had CNC machines 20 years ago, but you didn't find entrepreneurs and schools and smaller businesses and certainly not hobbyists um, having access to the, that equipment. And so what we've tried to do is um, make, make machines that are just as capable as those larger machines, maybe a little, maybe a little slower, maybe a little smaller, um, but still able to make things out of metal, much easier to use, much more affordable, uh, work on single phase power, uh, the kind of household power that you'd have in your home or in your office. Um, awesome. make that stuff yeah. available to everybody. Well, I just love that. I think, you know, I think back to my shop class in high school and just how much I loved it and I didn't pursue it. It just seemed like, oh, there's a little experience to have. And, you know, that'll be the end of that. And I really like that this, this era that's coming in where making things at a really high level is so much more available to everyone. And, and so I was wondering if you could like tell us a story, you know, the Tormont machines make awesome things. What's the story of one of your customers who's just like lights you up? Someone that's we just have, making cool uh, shit. We have, um, <laughs> can I tell a couple? I, I'll, yeah, here's all, here's yeah, please. please. So we like we stories. Have, we like we have customers that do all sorts of wild stuff with our equipment. Like when you think of a CNC mill, you think, oh, well, it's going to make, you know, some bracket out of metal. But um we have customers, we have a customer that makes camera mounts for sharks. They put cameras on what? sharks as biological is research, awesome. and they use, the, use our machines to make the mounts for the sharks. We have a customer that makes powered parachutes, you know, the <gasps> little parachutes that fly around. We have um, customers that do stuff with our equipment that isn't even machining. So NASA uses one of our milling machines with a fourth axis to wind uh, antenna coils. Um, there's just endless. And then the, the really neat thing about this job is that, um, you know, you've probably heard somebody say there are a million ways to make a buck, right? But you really, there are a million <laughs> successful small businesses out there yeah, with these crazy yeah. diverse products. And so... Yeah. You know, you look through the customer list and you end up talking to somebody who's making, when you go to the, the hotel and there's a pool and there's a wheelchair lift that helps people uh -huh. get out of the pool yeah. using yeah. city water pressure, like yeah. those, that, that's a business. Those folks use a milling machine. <laughs> they use our oh. milling machine. Um, most recently, my favorite customer though, because I think that was, 
may have been implied in the question. Yeah. And I think maybe we'll get around to talking about this later in the show, the idea behind this. Um, my favorite customer I talked to a couple of weeks ago, and he was really happy to have uh, our equipment. And he had one of our lathes and he had automated it. So it was kind of running for two hours at a time by itself, making a piece, cutting it off, making a piece, cutting it off. And then every couple hours, he'd have to go put more stock, more material in it so it could continue to do this. And I said, you know, is this your, is this your business? And he said, no, I'm a software developer, but I've been working from home for the past two years. And I always found this interesting. And I had somebody that needed these pieces made. And so I'm kind of double dipping because I'm able to work eight hours a day. Yeah. I work from my garage and every two hours, I take a little break and I feed the machine some more material. And so I've got two businesses going now. Um, I just thought cool. that was really, really cool. Yeah. Able yeah. To kind of pursue yeah. one of their passions or one of their dreams um, without having to quit the day job or take that giant leap. Yeah. I'm curious, how how often, Rogi, do you know what your customers are going to do with the machine before they purchase it? Uh, Is that something they're often sharing with your sales team or you to discover which machine they need? Or is it, yeah. We don't have a sales team. Much like I think your your company has found that uh, more and more people do their research online and buy stuff without even talking to people. You got Um, it. We have like tech support staff that are machinists and engineers, and we do have two people that do like kind of a pre-sale advising. Because a lot of folks they know that a milling machine could be used to make their part, but they don't quite know how, and they want to ask questions. But sure. we don't um, we don't call call people or you know take names at trade shows and then call to follow up or anything like that. It's very much customers come to the website, and if they call us up, we end up talking to them. I don't, um, it kind of varies by industry. Okay. Mm-hmm. Whether sure. we know what they're making. Some yeah. folks are really vocal about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And some folks not so much. Um, and it also kind of varies by product. Like the robot is a pretty new product. And so um, we definitely ask a lot of questions before somebody buys a robot because some sure. people think you can do just about anything with a robot, which it turns out is not true. Um, I don't know. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. Yeah. Not yet. And then also we, you know, we have a little web form when people are looking to purchase. We ask them what they're interested in and what they're going to yeah. do. So it's a fair number of folks we've got an idea. Okay. Interesting. Very we good. didn't know about the shark, the camera shark person that was uh, <laughs> found that out after the sale. Well, that yeah. just keeps playing in my head. I keep thinking Austin Powers right now. I'm sure all of you are thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just keep thinking laser beam. <laughs> um so rogi one thing that really unites all of the guests on our show is just the faith in um american manufacturing really has a a bigger future now than it probably did you know pre-pandemic and whatnot um but everyone's got a different perspective on what it's really going to take to have full success when it comes to this i mean there's conversation around that diverse workforce there's conversation around automation leading the way, um, and even policy being the linchpin for really securing U.S. manufacturing, um, putting, giving you the opportunity to stand up on your soapbox. What is it that you think is going to be critical ah. and vital Uh-oh. You know, for Uh-oh. <laughs> um, the next 
10, 20, 30 years for manu- American manufacturing to really excel and flourish here. Oh, how much, how much time do we have? <laughs> Take all the time you need. Just yes. make so it good. First off, I don't know. Like, like, yeah. well, I want to get that right out on the table. I'll give you my opinion, but it's sure. completely, sure. Uh, you know, the pandemic has shown people a lot of different things, but mm-hmm. one of the things that's shown us all is that we're terrible at predicting the future. Two and a half years ago, you know, everybody had this whole, in fact, the beginning of 2020, when we still knew that COVID-19 was a thing, people yeah. were making pr- predictions that turned out to be just wildly inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we have seen a ton of people either reshoring or nearshoring during yeah, the pandemic. Sure. Yeah. And I think part of that is, um, is the you know continued stuff that was set in motion with the 301 tariffs, which is a whole other discussion, but it definitely made Chinese manufacturing more expensive. And so people that were either started that process in 2018 or thought about starting that process in 2018, um, that's definitely brought some stuff back. But mm-hmm. the big thing for me was the whole supply chain disruption the increase in the shipping costs, the mm-hmm. increase in the time, the transit time with port congestion, China's COVID lockdown policies. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people have come back to either US or USMCA mm-hmm. manufacturing. Yeah. Um, which is which is great. So, but the question I think was what is the next 10 to 15 years and what's the most important thing? Yeah we could do yeah in your opinion um it's gonna be a sound like a strange answer right let's have it yeah we like Uh, like strange answers we could come up with a national health plan or socialized medicine tell us more yeah (laughs) i'm definitely leaning into this right yeah let's hear it does not jump to this is how we're gonna re you know bring manufacturing back to the united states um, I talked about that person that didn't have to quit his day job in order yeah. to become basically a cottage industry. He was a, he's manufacturing products in his garage and he didn't have to quit his day job. And the reason that was important to him is he has healthcare through his day job, as yep. I'm sure perhaps sure. the other people on this call have either healthcare through their jobs right. or through their spouse's job. Um, yeah. That's a huge burden to people starting small businesses to people starting small manufacturing businesses. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of there's a lot of demand for manufacturing here, more demand than there is capacity. And there are plenty of small folks that would be happy to go out on their own. I mean, the big market that we sell to. Yeah. Um, but it's it's tough doing right. that without um, decent healthcare. A. And then B. Over the next 10 to 15 years of healthcare costs continue to go at the pace that they have. I mean, they're outpacing even today's crazy inflation. (laughs) Healthcare costs are outpacing. So clearly the country has to do something about that. But I actually think that would be helpful for um, manufacturing in the United States. I I love that answer, actually. And and I don't want to go into a big conversation around this, but I've never understood why healthcare is associated with employment. Mm Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you know, everyone should have rights to good health care, regardless of who you're employed with or if you're employed. 
think a um, lot of it went back to the labor shortage after World War II and companies competing on that, but that's a, like I said, a different. Totally different topic. Totally so, different podcast a, theme altogether, actually. <laughs> the other uh, thing that, the other, so, and I, I handed at this, I think, where I hope, in fact, one of the things Tormac wants to do is bring cottage industry back to the mm-hmm. United States. I mean, I would love to look back in 20 years on my career and say, I helped bring cottage industry back. And um, one of the things, and this is maybe not a positive, <laughs> one of the things that might do that is COVID. Yeah. Um, you know, both from the demand side, okay, our cheap Asian manufacturing partners that supply chains have relied on for the past 10 to 20 years, that became less certain. And so we want to bring stuff back to the United States. But you remember when the pandemic and the lockdowns happened, there were strict, you know, policy people weren't going into work. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. People were wearing contact tracing devices when they did go into manufacturing jobs, there were shutdowns. Now, this is the depressing thing. You know, we've been living with COVID for two years and we've got uh, new variants popping up all the time. And I feel very lucky that these new variants have generally been less mild, you know, but imagine an Omicron variant with the severity of the Delta variant. And it could, we could see things go back into a lockdown mentality, in which case distributed cottage industry would be good for the United States. Oh, that's a mixed... That's a lot. That's a lot to process. <laughs> but well, I, I think the, the takeaway, I love what you said at the, ans- at the beginning of your answer, what no one can predict the future. Mm-hmm. And I, I think especially in manufacturing, that's important because, you know, somebody will say, oh, here's the panacea. Here's what we're going to do to solve American manufacturing. And what the message, the take home from you is really, we need to be flexible. We need to be adaptable because we don't know what's coming. Mm -hmm. And if we take flexibility and adaptability and, and, you know, guaranteed healthcare is part of that, just that you have the ability to respond to the circumstances. That's what could really jump us manufacturing ahead. And that's the, the positive message that I'm hearing from you. We're a much more stringent sort of totalitarian environment as they have in China, isn't going to allow for that, you know, ability to react to circumstances. So I, that's, what I'd like to have as the takeaway in a, in a positive way. Let's be flexible. Let's be adaptable. Um, and let's take care of each other. So um, I, I, I definitely say preach Rogi preach. I mean, <laughs> we, we need more entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, uh, help this country grow. Um, I'm sure not just this country, but other countries. And I'm going to take us on another interesting topic. And I'd like to yeah. get your opinion here. Um, you know, I'm not sure if you know this, but uh, my company, Gen Alpha Technologies, is an e-commerce provider and uh, for aftermarket parts. And the companies that use our solution use it to sell the aftermarket parts for the equipment that they manufacture. And, um, you know, uh, right to repair is something that has been a bit controversial over the years. And uh, the B2B companies that you know, certainly uh, I'm in touch with and uh, companies such as yourself, the right to repair a piece of equipment is important to the end users. You know, we as consumers of products, 
we want to be able to repair our equipment. And I'd just like to get your opinion on the right to repair. Um, well, we're, we're big fans of the right to repair, which means different things to different people, right? I mean, I will confess that five years ago, the right to repair to me meant, okay, you're gonna have decent technical documentation. You're gonna have spare parts available for equipment, even equipment that's obsolete, you no longer sell it, you know, maintain 10 years worth of inventory worth of spare parts, or perhaps you try your best to use um, industrial available components. You know, like when we, we don't design our own contactors, we just go buy contactors. And if that sure. contactor is not available, any 20 amp, double pull, con you know, and they're swappable, right? Yep. I've come to realize though, uh, more recently that a lot of people take the right to repair is like all the way down to the circuit board level. So we actually published the schematics for, and the, like the binary files, the firmware, all that stuff for all our products is online mm -hmm. on GitHub. Uh, and we do have customers that are, you know, they're replacing resistors or opto isolators or relays on boards that have gone bad over the years, which surprises me because in, in my world, that's not economical. If a machine that we rely on goes bad, you know, we might replace the entire machine. We might replace a circuit board. I'm talking about like the printer in the office, right? Sure. <laughs> We're yeah. not digging it out and like desoldering a chip from the circuit board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there are people that do that. Um, yeah. And I will say that we do, we talk to customers that uh, have purchased other industrial equipment. It drives them nuts. I mean, you spend $150,000 on a machine and then you're told that you can't bring in the company you want to do a calibration on, a, on that machine. You have to go back to the factory that you bought it from to do the calibration. Yeah. And it just really, really cheeses people off. Some, one of our competitors has a service key. So you buy the machine, but you can't open the electrical cabinet because only the wow. factory technicians have the mm. service key. Yeah. I definitely like to say that technical data is currency today. And I do think that when people shop for capital equipment or large assets that they're going to run uh, and continue to run in an operation where they need to have productivity and, and products coming off the line, they want the ability to very quickly get the information for the machine that they own. And I think in your world, what I'm hearing is the do-it-yourselfers are kind of the people who are buying your equipment in the first place. They're, they're creative. They have ideas about something that they want to, to build and, and put out into the world. And they, they may have the interest in even getting down into those uh, little pieces that, yeah, I wouldn't even historically <laughs> yeah. think that people would want to fix on their own. Some of them, some of them. Yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. Um, you know Another thing that I think goes, when you think of right to repair, you do think of somebody like getting out the screwdriver and fixing the thing. Yeah. yeah. But a big part of right to repair in my mind is software. Yes. And so when you buy, and this is changing for, we'll use cars as the, as the example, but when you buy a car, like nowadays there, there's a computer or two or three in that car, right? Yeah. And you're used to your desktop computer when Microsoft comes up with an update, whether you want it or not, you're just kind of forced to take it, which you might get driven nuts by Word getting updated. And then you've got to remember where the darn mm. buttons are in Microsoft mm. Word, but at least they're consistently and continuously improving the product, right? Mm -hmm. You buy a car and um, 
it's kind of frozen in time. The software that runs that car, it's mm. just frozen. Maybe you get a called into the factory for some or the dealership for some recall and they do an update or something. Or maybe you got a really advanced, you know, I think Tesla perhaps is mm -hmm. able to do a network networked firmware update. But um, in our world, a machine tool traditionally ships with the, the control, the user interface, and that's just, it is what it is. And so if you bought that thing in 2005, you're running software that was available in mm -hmm. 2005. Sure. Um, with our equipment, that's not the case. You know, if you've got a network connection, it just lets you know when there's an update. And I think smart manufacturers will try to move that way too, because software is increasingly a really important part of industrial equipment. Yeah, love that. Mm -hmm. Well, the, this has been super interesting. And I, I'm going to confess, I, I learned a term when I was doing my research for this podcast. And I think we've been dancing around it. And I'd like you to expand on it a little bit, if you don't mind. Democratization of manufacturing. So what is it? Why is it awesome? Oh, the democratization <laughs> of manufacturing. Mm -hmm. um, to me, it just means making things available to um, not just deep-pocketed corporations, but to individuals with, you know, average resources. And that's it, a not a very well-defined. <laughs> <laughs> if you could afford to purchase or finance a, uh, you know, an economy car, I think you should also have access to manufacturing equipment. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. I don't think we're ever going to make it free, right? But if you can. If you can take the tools that are available to uh, large auto manufacturers like industrial robotics or CNC machines, and you can make those available to people that uh, are able to fund a modest Kickstarter project or are able to um, you know, afford a couple hundred dollar a month payment on a business loan, then I think you'll see uh, a, lot more, a lot more innovation, perhaps right. more manufacturing in the United States. I mean, right. we did talk about healthcare as a driver of manufacturing. I, I kind of picked that as because I thought it would be an interesting discussion topic, but mm -hmm. autom <laughs> automation, <laughs> automation is another clear, you know, it's another clear uh, path for us to bring manufacturing back. And I don't mean like the really fancy automation when you see like the robot doing assembly and it's got a mm -hmm. screwdriver and it's, I don't, I don't see that being a driver. What I do see is there are a lot of people that have businesses that are completely not automated. You would be surprised when I visit. Oh, no. We oh, know. Yeah. We know. <laughs> we see. Yeah. And so, um, you know, there are, just if you look at welding, welding is a great example right now. Everybody has seen for years the, you know, the video clips on the news of the car assembly plant with these crazy robots coming in to spot weld the car frame, Right. But if you go to any of the small businesses in the little business parks that surround Madison and you just look at the welding ones, it's somebody holding a welding torch, breathing nasty fumes, yeah. ruining yeah. their eyesight, or you know, hopefully with proper safety equipment, maybe not ruining their eyesight, but doing that day in and day out. And it's, um, it's less efficient than robotic welding. It's um, quality, the quality control is worse than robotic welding. 
And if we can get um, robotic welding to a place where you don't need a two-year degree uh, in industrial automation to learn how to program a robot welder, and you don't have to spend $150,000 to purchase a robot welding cell, if we could we make it easy enough to use and cheap enough, people will take a chance on it. Sure. And, I, and this is not about, oh man, I got, you know, don't get me wrong. I don't want to put a welder out of work, right? Yeah. The truth is we don't have enough welders in this country right now. Yeah. And for some welding tasks, it's not a fun job, right? And so sure. I think uh, if we can make this, uh, make a product that's easy enough to, to program, easy enough to use, we can have um, transition people out of doing that manual repetitive task and into programming a robot to do that manual repetitive task. And so what I'm shooting for in automation is uh, not replacing the whole enchilada, but replacing the, the, there's a lot of stuff that just really makes sense to replace. Sure. As apparently you all realize from the reaction we got on, <laughs> a lot of people haven't automated anything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I love that idea of democratization of manufacturing, both for the individual level to give freedom to the individual to contribute and participate in manufacturing. But I think as far as you mentioned, innovation, just letting those ideas have, you know, nurture those ideas is, um, is just, it's critical for us to stay ahead and also to be the awesome country that we, that we can be. Thank you. Hey, yeah. it's that Very time nice. in the show that time everybody looks forward to i just <laughs> learned that <laughs> so uh rogi this is how we wrap up okay. we go around we do a round robin and you've complete the sentence i just learned that okay. so um let's start with Lori, and she can show you how it works and then we'll just go around all right learned. yeah so i'm really um i'm like I don't know what the word is here. My brain's not working today, apparently. But anyways, <laughs> I'm um, like, I'm digital. Like that's all I do. Digital marketing, love digital, fascinated with it. Um, and there's a stereotype that millennials, even though I would I'd say I'm not quite a millennial, but I'm like right on the line there, um, are digital natives. They're glued to their phones. Um, they always are um, looking at technology of some sort and that's how they're getting their information so advertisers and marketers say this is where i need to view well the united states post office actually conducted some research and found that millennials take the time to look through their mail and they actually read the advertising material that's being sent to them and they actually can recall the specific brands that are sending them direct mail so even though i'm you know kind of talking about something that is not necessarily my passion and I'm all for digital advertising. Right. Um, the whole old school snail mail still is an active way to get in front of your audience. So I thought that was fascinating. That is fascinating. I, I always think that I, I love getting a letter in the mail. You know, I, I personally, I'm a Gen X. So when I get ads, it's just rip it and toss it. Uh, mm -hmm. but I, you know, that's me personally, doesn't mean it's my whole generation, of course, but that is a very interesting, uh, find. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll include the link to their findings in the show notes too. Yeah, please do. Perfect. Thank you. Chris, what about you? 
Yeah. So I just learned a new quote that I, that really resonated with me in my morning reading. So I'm going to read it. Mistakes are a fact of life. It is the response to the error that counts. Um, and, you know, I've always felt that you need to have some failures in life and, and get back up and learn from those that really help you to keep succeeding. But what was interesting is that the uh, person who wrote this quote is Nikki Giovanni. I had never heard of her. So then I had to look up, okay, who is this person with this quote? She's an American poet born in 1943. Um, her most famous poem is Nikki Rosa. I haven't had a chance to look at the poem yet, but again, all new world opened up to, uh, to me, but she's a distinguished professor of English at Virginia Tech. So Nikki Giovanni, great quote. Ooh, I love it. It's very true, not just personally, but for business relationships, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, we sell a fair number of machines and they're complicated things. And we, sometimes they show up and there's something wrong with them. Right. And it's yeah. how we react to that. that right. Counts. The response. Yeah. Exactly. I had, I had a, as soon as you said that this popped in my head, I had a hockey coach that would always say, fix your mistake. And that just like, I yeah. listen and hear him saying that to me all right. the time in all aspects of life, but that just right. has like fix, just go and fix them. You make a mistake. Great. Now go fix it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There, there's an assumption there that a mistake will happen, which mm -hmm. is almost more helpful than like, if you make mistakes, like, well, we're, we're not, not perfect. Gonna... We're not yeah. perfect. Yeah. That's, That's right. good. That's a good one. Erin, what about you? Um, well, as, as per usual, I'm a little off in the deep end here, but I just learned uh, Quakers. It's an interesting faith tradition, I would call it, because mm -hmm. it's not necessarily a religion and it's not a, um, yeah. So Quaker have such a, a beautiful way of looking at the world that they see, they believe that the divine is in everyone. So there are some Quakers more closely affiliated with um, Christianity, the history of the church, and some that have left that and just um, continue their worship by being deeply respectful to other people. And I just think, I thought that was really interesting to learn about their, their history and their faith system. Hmm. What about you, Rogi? What you got for <laughs> us? Are you all familiar with FIRST Robotics? It's a high school level... No, no. Oh, you'll have, you'll have to, you'll have to Google that right after. Okay. First robotics. First All robotics. right. It's we'll a robotics a challenge for, for high school uh, mm -hmm. level students. Okay. And um, in general, they, uh, they find out what the challenge is in January. And then they have six weeks to build a robot to compete in that challenge. Okay. And, I just learned that a couple of years ago, the challenge was the robot has to throw a Frisbee from like 30 yards away into an opening about yay big, a couple feet wide by a foot high. I, I would have a hard time doing that. Yeah, like yeah. a slot. <laughs> right? While the opposing team is trying uh -oh. to block oh. sometimes around obstacles. Oh, wow. Oh. And the way team was able to do this 60 times in two minutes. And oh, if you wow. look at the YouTube video, okay. it's pretty amazing. If you just YouTube first robotics frisbee, right. um, 
imagine these high school kids built those robots in six weeks when you watch that video it's just mind-blowing incredible that's That's awesome awesome. is that a national competition or is that a national competition yeah yeah okay Mm -hmm. okay so all the schools can participate cool i can't wait to check that out thanks Awesome, everybody. Well, um, just a pleasure to chat with you, Rogi. Um, I'm looking forward to, we're going to be working on a panel together coming up here in Madison on, cool. um, on entrepreneurial thinking and manufacturing. And I'm looking forward to kind of digging a little deeper to some of the things we talked about today. That's August 18th in Madison, Wisconsin. Awesome. And um, yeah, with that, I, I think we'll let you head out. Anything Good. else? Well, thanks thanks so much, Rogi. Okay. Uh, appreciate nice it speaking with you all have a Very great day oh, thank Super you so fun. much thank you yeah see ya this wraps up today's broadcast if you're looking to shake up the status quo at your organization or just want to connect with these broads visit mfgbroadcast.com contact Lori Hybe for your strategic digital marketing initiatives Contact Chris Harrington for OEM and aftermarket digital solutions. And contact Aaron Courtney for web-based solutions for your complex business problems. We've got a great offer specifically for our listeners. You can find more information about the offers and your hosts at mfgbroadcasts.com.